0: The Hamlet Podcast. Hello and welcome to another bonus episode. This one is dedicated to someone who might be unfamiliar to listeners outside of Ireland, but who is utterly essential to the history of Shakespeare in this country. His name is Anu McMaster. Last year, as I was completing the final chapter of my book – I wound up quoting a brilliant Japanese academic who was herself quoting the brilliant Stephen Greenblatt in his book, Marvelous Possessions, The Wonder of the New World. Greenblatt had made much of the idea of first encounters between cultures, and Professor Hamana used it to describe the idea of Japanese people seeing Shakespeare performed for the first time. As I've been reading about Annie McMaster this week, the phrase has been very much on my mind since he was responsible for bringing such experiences and first encounters to people all over Ireland. Anu McMaster was born on Christmas Eve in 1891, apparently in Birkenhead, but he had no problem rewriting the story to make himself more Irish as he retold his tale over the years. His first steps were towards a career in banking but before he was 20, he had packed that in and joined the O'Brien Ireland Theatrical Company. He learned his trade and had some success in England and in Australia, and eventually he came back to Ireland, founding the McMaster Intimate Theatre Company in 1925. For nearly 35 years afterwards, this fit-up company toured Ireland and brought Shakespeare, Sheridan, Shaw and countless other plays the length and breadth of the country. The company's repertory was extraordinary. The sheer list of plays that they were ready to perform at a few hours' notice would make a contemporary company quake in their boots. Given that McMaster, known as Mac by those who've written about him, was the star of the show, it's no surprise that this repertory was built around his greatest roles. He was famous particularly for his Othello, his Coriolanus, his Oedipus, his Shylock, his Petruchio, and of course, his Hamlet. McMaster played Hamlet for as long as he could get away with it, and my own mother told me the story of how he coped with ageing and playing this gargantuan part. Apparently he used to cheat, ever so slightly, by taping small pieces of paper with the soliloquies on them to various columns that adorned the bare-bones set. He would then drape himself dramatically against each, pensively prepared to perform the lines as he checked in on them. The story goes that one particularly memorable evening he was heard saying a terribly rude word under his breath when he realised that he had draped himself, as he also whispered, against the wrong pillar. One of the joys of working with Irish actors is that they very often have a great story or two about the shenanigans that surrounded the fit-ups. My first ever job was working with a touring Shakespeare company and the production was Othello. I've never forgotten one of the senior members of the troupe who had us in stitches laughing at his account of how one night the immortal Mac was unhappy at the placement of Desdemona's bed in the final scene. The spotlight was arranged to catch him and not her in her bed, and so in this incredibly difficult emotional moment in which he readies himself to kill his wife... Desdemona must have had quite a shock as she lay there once McMaster started, perfectly timed with his lines of course, nudging the bed to its correct position so that the spotlight was once again his alone. This isn't to say of course that he wasn't a generous actor. Actors have stated that acting with him was like performing a duet and he would always insist that they get a laugh where it was necessary, even at his own expense. Woe betide anyone who got the giggles on stage, or ever made a mistake. At his best, his concentration was surgically precise, merciless even. An actor called David Barron, then a young member of the company, remembered it as follows. In the trial scene in The Merchant of Venice one night, I said to him, as Bassanio, instead of, for thy three thousand ducats here is six, quite involuntary, "'For thy three thousand buckets here is is six, he replied quietly and with emphasis. "'If every bucket in six thousand buckets were in six parts, and every part a bucket, "'I would not draw them. I would have my bond.' "'I could not continue. The other members of the court scene and I turned upstage. "'Some walked into the wings, but Mac stood, remorseless, grave, like an eagle, waiting for my reply.' In order to present Oedipus, the company had to recruit extras from the town or village we were in. One night in Dundalk, Mac was building up to his blind climax when one of the extras had an epileptic fit on stage and collapsed. He was dragged to the wings where various women attended to him. The sounds of their ministrations seeped onto the stage. Mac stopped, turned to the wings and shouted, for God's sake, can't you see I'm trying to act? His concentration was always complete in Oedipus he was at his best in the part. He acted with acute underness and tenacity, and he never used his vocal powers to better or truer effect. He acted along the spine of the role and never deviated from it. As in his two other great roles, Othello and Lear, he understood and expressed totally the final tender clarity which is under the storm, the blindness, the anguish. For me, his acting at these times embodied the idea of Yeats's line. They know that Hamlet and Lear are gay, gaiety transfiguring all that dread. Mack entered into this tragic gaiety naturally and inevitably. Of course, that young actor, David Barron, was Harold Pinter and those stories are recorded in the short memoir *Mac*, published after McMaster died in the early 1960s a man of tall stature and an unforgettable voice, as described, McMaster brought Shakespeare to generations of Irish people. They were appreciative audiences, particularly engaged by the stories that he and his company told. One night, during the final act of Romeo and Juliet, an eager audience member shouted up to him as he was playing Romeo, finding Juliet seemingly dead in the tomb. Give her a good shake, came the advice. Another time in the wilds of County Clare, when he tried to incorporate some modern comedy or other into the repertory, someone at the back of the pit shouted out that they of the town were too backwardy for them highbrow shows. What about giving us Julius Caesar? Just goes to show his work of bringing Shakespeare to the people was totally successful and they felt an access to it and an ownership of it. Thanks to the way we can access recorded media these days, you can actually find recordings of McMaster on YouTube or Spotify. If you look him up, there's an album of his Scenes from Shakespeare that gives a sense of that voice and his style. There's also a wonderful radio documentary from RTE, created soon after his death, that you can access online, and I'll share a link to it on the website. McMaster was of an older generation, not particularly interested in avant-garde or 20th century method acting. His views on the subject are memorably recorded in the memoirs of his brother-in-law, law Mihol macleamore another great figure in 20th century Irish theatre. MacLeamore's autobiography, All for Hecuba, is named after the line from Hamlet and is a terrifically written yarn of a life in the theatre. macleamore got his start working with McMaster and eventually his sister, Marjorie Wilmore, became MacMaster's wife. I'll with MacLeahmore's description of his mentor, written from the perspective of the young man in Paris, yearning to come home to Ireland and join an acting company. Not just any company, but this one. His career had landed him in a series of extreme and characteristic situations. He had had immense experience of the stage, and his adventures had taken him from Shakespeare to musical comedy and from Greek tragedy to Paddy the Next Best Thing. He had acted in repertory in the West End, on English tours, and in the Irish fit-ups. He had played with many of the greatest stars, as well as with what often seemed to be all the Toms, Dicks and Harries of the profession. At the time of which I speak, he had been for two years touring his own company in the Irish country towns, and that life, which at various intervals I had shared with them, lived, as it were, in some brilliant and preposterous caravan on a grey mountain road, suited some wild and restless blood that lurked in his and his wife's veins, so that any more settled mode of living, they have often told me, must seem impossible. It was of these two people I was dreaming now, and of the black velvet fit-up, of the occasional jewel-like beauty of the stage pictures he had managed to contrive, and of the hushed and silent country audiences of the majesty of the plays themselves in that incongruous setting of shawled heads and creaking boots, of the reek of wet frieze coats and the melancholy turf smoke. And the towns, the little dull towns, with their rain-washed gleaming roofs and gay companionships and eager appreciation.